Now, there's some things here that we need really to get a hold of because the NIV is an excellent translation, particularly the original pre-Rupert Murdoch translation. You remember Rupert Murdoch bought this translation and he forced a change and you cannot even buy this as a new Bible anymore. But it is an excellent translation, but it does tend at points to give a thought for thought as over against a word for word. And so, as I mentioned, in, Gen- in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2, literally, in all of these cases, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah. So that's very clear, very exacting. Now, what Matthew does is set up a scheme or a model of three clusters of 14. And, and so what he does is to leave people out. Um, I could say that my great-grandfather, who was a Methodist minister, whose daughter married a Presbyterian minister, that my great-grandfather begot me. It simply means in the Hebraic way of doing genealogies, so-and-so begot so-and-so, you may skip two or three generations, and it's still true. So the ancestor, and this is clearly a biological thing. Now, the thing I want you to do, we're going to have to hold our hand here. We're going to go back and forth between two passages of Scripture. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And what we discover here is something very interesting. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 23, that's page 1594. So you want to be able to go back and forth. You'll notice here, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. But Luke did not believe that Jesus was the biological son of Joseph. And he makes that very plain in Luke chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. And at the moment of Jesus' conception, Mary was a virgin. And she remained a virgin until after she and Joseph came together. Remember, they were engaged to be married. And in the Jewish way, engagement is marriage minus the act of consummation. So both Matthew and Luke go out of their way to stress that Mary was a virgin, that she did not know a human being uh, and did not have a human husband, or that Jesus had a physical, biological father. So we note that. Now notice what happens next after that. Uh, So it was thought of Joseph. Then he says, the son of Heli. Now that's very interesting. If you hold your hand there and flip back to uh, to Matthew, you discover something. And that is that in Matthew's genealogy, We see at the very end here, at verse 16, Matthew 1.16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. 
Now, what we notice here is this. In Matthew 1.16, who is the father of Joseph? It is Jacob. Jacob begot Joseph. Jacob begot Joseph. Whereas if you look back in Luke, you discover that the father of Joseph is not Jacob, but Heli. What's the problem? Why do we have this? Here's the answer. In Greek, you have something called the genitive of relationship. So literally what it says is not the son of, but of Heli, of Matthat, and going on down. And you see how that's borne out in verse 37 as we go back, not to Abraham, but to Adam. And he says, the son of Methuselah, actually literally it says of Methuselah, of Enoch, of Jared, of Mahalal, of Kenan, of Enosh, of Seth, of Adam, of God. So we need to understand something. The idea of somebody being biologically the ancestor is not here in the Gospel of Luke. It's simply a relationship. And we see it very clearly in the very last uh, phrase of God. Did God create Adam by literally doing that which produces a baby? And the answer to that is no. It's a genitive of relationship. And so Luke is very important to tell us that this person did not beget this person, but that there was a relationship here. God created Adam. Adam was created by God. That's the relationship, not a biological thing. God took the dirt of the ground and he formed it into Adam and breathed into Adam divine life the first and only time. When did human life begin? I've said this about 20 times here. Human life began only once on our planet, and that is when Almighty God sovereignly breathed the breath of life into Adam, and he became a living being. And then God took that life of Adam in the form of a rib, and he created Eve as a living being from Adam's rib. So human life continued from Adam to Eve, and then on down the bloodline, Seth, and so on. So we see this is a genitive of relationship. So what do I believe? I believe that Matthew gives us the legal ancestry of Jesus, literally, going back to Abraham, going back to David, and it is a legal ancestry because Joseph, having been instructed by the angel Gabriel in a dream, married Mary, who was his espoused wife, who then became his legal wife. And so Jesus is legally born as the son of Joseph, even though Joseph is not his biological father. Jesus had no biological father. And so we see that clearly. Whereas in Luke, what we have is a series of relationships is it a father or a father-in-law? Let me give you one more example. Look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 31. 
of Malia, of Mena, of Matatha, of Nathan, of David. What is Jesus' bloodline in Luke? Who is omitted in this verse? Who is included in Matthew? Who? Who is the son of David legally in the line of succession of kingship in Matthew and here in a genitive of relationship who is the ancestor of Christ who is the son of David he says it's Nathan but if you go back to Matthew which gives the legal ancestry of Jesus it's Solomon in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6 David begot Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So what I want to say is this. God had promised long ago that he would take a descendant of David and put him on David's throne. Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is legally the son of David. But what Luke makes plain is that that genealogy stopped with Solomon. And it was another son of David named Nathan, who is the ancestor in Luke's line. I believe that the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 gives us the genealogy of Mary. After all, if God promised that my whatever descendant would be king in my place, and some guy adopted a woman, and that guy happened to be my descendant, but this is an adopted child, it's not exactly the same. So I believe we should read Luke's account as the genealogy of Mary because there never is a begot here in Luke chapter 3. It's only relationship of so-and-so, of so-and-so. Now let's go back and we see something else as we go back to Matthew's Gospel, where we'll stick for a while. In Hebrew, letters have numerical value. The fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Dalet. The sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Vav, or Wa. So, what you've got with the word David, Dalet, Vav, Dalet, is 14. And I believe that Luke, I mean, excuse me, that Matthew, who really knew his Bible, but in his greed to make money, kind of turned away from his faith for a while, I believe that he clustered these genealogical records in three clusters of 14 deliberately because he's saying something. He's saying, David, 14. David, 14. David, 14. Excuse me, David. <laughs> so, anyhow, so we see something there. Now, what else do we see here? Because I think this is fascinating. Luke, other than mentioning Mary and her relative Elizabeth, isn't really focused on the women at all. But look at what Matthew does. And I want to submit to you a reason why Matthew does this. Matthew was called by Jesus as a crook 
Let that sink in. You see, the Romans taxed the people. And they farmed it out. So it was a really great scheme. It's kind of like Amway and a pyramid scheme. And so the goal in being in Amway is to be at the top rung. Because if you're at the top rung, you're making money off all these other people. Now, Matthew is not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in Jericho, which was a major trade route. Whereas Matthew is not that. He is a tax collector. How they made money was this. If the Romans were expecting one dollar, well, let's make it, let's do it to inflation with what's coming, a thousand dollars. If Rome was expecting a thousand dollars, how did you get paid? Well, if you're the chief tax collector, if you're high up on the Amway chain, what you would do is you would add a little money to it. And so you would, you would tax more. But you had other Amway salesmen underneath you, and they would add theirs. So Matthew is a guy who's added his percent on top of the other tax collector on top of the other tax collector. How do you like? I wrote my January 15th taxes back in November because I didn't want to forget because I've forgotten at least twice and always, oh my. So here's the deal. How do you like paying taxes? Well, how would you like paying taxes if we were occupied? Let's say there was a movie, um, Red Dawn. How would you like it if you were occupied by the Russians who had come up from Mexico and you had to pay taxes to the Russians? Or how would you like it if you were, and you know that the Red Chinese forced that the film company to change the villains from China to North Korea. How would you like to be paying taxes to people who are occupying our country? And you knew when you went there, you knew what your tax bill was, you thought, and then what? It's about 25% more because everybody's, it's like when I went into Mexico a couple of times, I always carried a 20 in my hand and shook hands with people with a $20 bill. Because what did that do? It expedited my trip into Mexico from the American border. People expect a tip in other countries, particularly government officials. Don't try that with a police officer, but in this country, but people expect tips. Well, in those days, people expected a tip. So there you go, and you're thinking, you ever been to a really expensive restaurant and there were, there were six of you, and there's a mandatory charge, and sometimes that mandatory charge is 20%, I tip 20% as a general rule, but I don't like being forced to tip it. And so here's the deal. You go to pay your bill, and you'd calculate in your mind this is going to be about $100 for six of us at Burger King. And um, <laughs> so anyhow, you're expecting a $100 charge, and lo and behold, it's 120 That's what the people were dealing with. So Matthew was an outcast. He was a hated man. He was viewed like a quizzling. He was a traitor because he's accepted a position under the Roman government to gouge you with tax money beyond what the Romans wanted. And so he's not like. So the first thing you got to understand here, only 
two of the four Gospels were written by people who were apostles in the technical sense. Matthew and John. Others were fellow travelers, like Mark. Mark was around and saw all these things. He was essentially a disciple of Peter, and so, but he was not one of the twelve. Nor was Luke, who was likely a Gentile medical doctor and very learned. So you have two of the Gospels written by members of the original 12 disciples, Matthew and Luke. And Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Matthew and John. And Matthew is a social outcast. Now that prepares the way for us for what we're about to see. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Do you know the story of Tamar? She was a Canaanite woman. And Judah had married a Canaanite woman. And his first son, he had married him to Tamar, a Canaanite woman. And he was a wicked man. And the Bible says the Lord killed him. You know, God has never committed murder. Murder is contrary to the character of God. But God kills people every day. And so the scriptures tell us in Genesis that Judah's son was wicked and God killed him. And so then in those days you had what's called leverite marriage. I was always grateful my brother had children. Because had my brother died childless, it would have been my obligation as the next of kin to marry his widow and bring her into the house with Sandy and to produce children. And the first child to be born would be counted as my brother's son. And so that's how it worked. Leverett marriage. Well, what happened is the next one uh, in line... Judah's son is a man named Onan. Onan knew that the child would not be his. It would affect his inheritance. This is always important. Money is the root of every kind of evil. And so what does Onan do? He engaged in what is called coitus interruptus. He had relations with Tamar, but he made sure in the old-fashioned method that she would not become pregnant. And that angered God, and God killed him too. Now Judah, the great blame shifter, is sitting there thinking, oh boy, man, this gal's bad news. She's got a hex on her. It's always the woman's fault, you know. It always is. And so he's there thinking, oh man, this girl is bad news. She's got a hex on her. And so what he does is he tells her, look, you go over and live with your daddy and mama. And when my youngest son is old enough, he'll become your husband. And of course, she knew good and well that was not going to happen. And so Tamar knew that she needed a child. And what did she do? She dressed herself up as a cult prostitute. And she went out on the side of the road near where they were shearing sheep. And her father-in-law, Judah's wife, had died. 
And so Judah now does not have a wife, and he's out there shearing sheep, and everybody out there when they're shearing sheep and, and, and enjoying all the fruit of the labor, sometimes they have a little bit to drink, sometimes they do this and that, and sometimes they decide to go frolicking uh, with somebody to whom they are not married. And so what Tamar did was to disguise herself, and she wore a veil, and she made sure the veil did not come off. And so Judah had physical relations with Tamar, and she became pregnant. Now Judah, what an old goat. When he learned that his daughter-in-law was pregnant outside of marriage, he said, bring her here and let her be burned. You know, some of the meanest, most hypocritical people you will ever meet in the world are religious people. I've learned that. Oh yeah, religious people. I mean, I think about what happens in the Middle East today and sometimes in our country. If a Muslim girl goes home, walks home from school with a male who is not her family, it's not out of the question she will be executed by her own father. Religious people can be cruel and mean. Bring her here and let her be burned. But Tamar was smart. Tamar knew that he had no, nothing with him except his signet ring, which he wore around his neck, and his staff. And in those days, a man's staff was very unique. And so what she said is, I want a sheep. And he said, okay. And she said, what pledge? Interesting word. It's used in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit means a down payment or deposit. What deposit will you give, give me? And she asked for his staff and his signet ring, which would be like asking for the keys to his car and his American Express card. God was really in the mood for love. And so she's being brought. He's going to have her killed. He's going to have her burned to death. Oh boy. And she said, Sir, just a moment, please. Okay. I am with child by the man whose these things are. And she produces his American Express card and the keys to the car. And he then says, She's more righteous than I. So is Tamar. Tamar is a woman who is determined to have a baby. It's not that she's out here being frisky. She just determined to have a baby. And God put it in Tamar's heart to have a baby. Because God's plan before the world began was that Tamar would be an ancestor of David and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus. Now, we go on down. And we come further to verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, that doesn't mean that Salmon begot Boaz himself. There may be a couple of generations here. Remember, Matthew has arranged them in three clusters of Davids. Daleth, Bob, Daleth, 14. And so, who is the ancestor of, of, of Boaz. 
His mother is Rahab. Now, who was Rahab? Well, Rahab was a Gentile, too. She was a citizen of the city of Jericho, the first city that fell of the Canaanites when Israel invaded. And what did she do for a living? She was part of the world's oldest profession, even older than the second, which is politicians. And so here is Rahab, who was a prostitute. She ran a whorehouse. But the good thing about a whorehouse in those days is it's kind of like certain denominations don't look at each other when they go in the liquor store. In those days, the people didn't look at each other. You're kind of head down. Uh, people try to keep their, their life uh, a secret. It so happens that one of my uncles was an attorney for the most famous bordello between New York and Miami. And he earned some money. And when he died, and then after that his wife died, I was able to finish seminary. If it hadn't been for that whorehouse near Georgetown, South Carolina, I might not have ever finished seminary. God didn't care what kind of money he earned it from. He did other law as well. He actually was Bernard Baruch's lawyer for South Carolina Holdings. But look at her. She's a prostitute. And that's where the spies go in and they're hidden out there and she makes sure that they're going to be saved and she promises them, I will not betray you. And she hangs that red thread out of her window and they rescue her. And you know what? She got married. And she married into the people of God, into the tribe of Judah. And then we go down further. And it says, Boaz begot Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, we're not going to turn there, but if you, were to, if you take notes, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3 says this. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3 says this. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt and they hired Balaam, son of Beor from Pethor in Aram Nahariam to pronounce a curse on you. So now, who is, who is Ruth? Now, Ruth is a lovely woman. She is a great model of a godly woman. She is a great model of a loyal person. And what happens is Naomi and her husband and two children fled the land of Judah uh, because of a famine, and they end up in Moab. And while they're there, the two boys marry Moabite women, a Moabitess. And so what happens is, in the course of time, Naomi's husband dies, and then the two sons die. And she's left with only her two daughters-in-law. And she says to both of them, as they're headed back towards Judah, she said, don't come with me. Said, I got nothing for you. My life is over. In fact, when Naomi reached home, Bethlehem, when she reached home, she said, don't call me Naomi, which means comfort. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She was a bitter, bitter woman. She lost her husband. She lost both sons. And she sent her daughter-in-laws back. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee. 
and are for following after you. Whither thou goest, I will go. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Ruth had found the God of the Bible, even in Moab, and she was determined to never let go of that God. And she went with her mother-in-law, and God arranged the whole thing. And so there's Boaz, who ends up, again by way of lover at marriage, marrying Ruth. And those are all ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moving on quickly. Now look at, again, we go down to David. David, he says in the next sentence of verse 6, David begot Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's interesting, isn't it? That in the actual biological genealogy of Jesus in Luke, it isn't Solomon and it isn't Bathsheba. But notice how she's referred to. She had been the wife of Uriah. Now, that says something. You know, under the law of God, Jewish people were not to marry non-Jews. This woman was either Jewish or Gentile, but she was married to a Gentile, Uriah the Hittite. And so we find here, it's interesting, as we go through these people, you've got Hamar, Tamar, who pretended to be a ritual prostitute. You've got Rahab, who was an actual prostitute, and both of these women are Gentiles. You've got Ruth, who came from an accursed people, the Moabites, and then you come down to Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. What is that saying? I think that Matthew is trying to make a big point. I, Matthew, am an outcast, and God took me in. And I think that he's going out of his way to say this. God takes outcasts. God takes wicked people. God takes people who have broken their marriage vows. God takes people who are very promiscuous, even a professional prostitute. God takes all kinds of people and he washes them in the blood of Jesus and he makes them right. And I want to say this to you today. As we read this genealogy about these strange women... And we'll continue it, God willing, on Christmas Day when we look at Mary again. God takes these people and he makes something out of them. Do you ever think, oh my, God could never use the likes of me. I've been an adulteress. Actually, was a professional hooker. I did this, I did that. My people were bad people. I came from the wrong side of the tracks. My ancestors were scum and dirt and filth. They were accursed under God. Do you ever think things like that? Do you ever think about something you did long ago? 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you slipped up one night and you did something that you regret and you still regret it today. And when you try to get close to God, when you try to, try to pray to Him and intercede, you think, God doesn't hear my prayers. I remember that night on December 18th, 2003. 
I'll never forget it. What to God? It never happened. Now I can't pray. I don't have any confidence that God hears my prayers because of what I did. Do you ever feel that way? Is it when you begin to pray that you feel condemnation coming? You know where that's coming from. It's coming from the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. And that's his great strategy, isn't it? He always will come against you, particularly when you try to pray. Why should God hear my prayers after all the wicked things I've done? Murder. Maybe somebody here has had an abortion. It's murder. Can God forgive murder? Of course he can. Of course he can. There is nothing you have ever done that God cannot forgive. There's nothing you've ever done that God won't forgive if you ask him to. And if you ask him to, believe the gospel because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Away with condemnation. God takes the riffraff. God takes the common folks. God takes the scum of the earth. God takes people who have been terribly unfaithful in every area. People who are liable for all kinds of worldly punishments. And, and liable for eternal punishments. And he forgives our sins. But what's more beautiful even than that is, God then takes people like that and he uses them. If God could take the likes of Tamar, of Rahab, of a Moabitess, and of a Bathsheba, God can take you and use you. You're important in the kingdom of God. God wants to bless you. God wants to make you a blessing. That's an important truth. Not only that God wants to bless you, He wants to make you a blessing as these women were. May we pray. Lord, we pray that we would take great comfort. We thank you for the consistency of Scripture, that there's no contradiction, that we have Matthew's perspective and we have Luke's perspective, and they're both true, infallibly true. And we know that Jesus is descended biologically from David, and we know that Jesus is descended legally from David. And we thank you that the amazing at the amazing bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you grant us great encouragement from this as we pray, as we believe, as we walk in the freedom of the children of God? Lord, would you grant that be so for all of us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.